Storage and transmission are critical to a renewable world, but cheap per Jacobson. Digging into the latest Stanford study on 100% renewables. Welcome to The Future is Electric, a techno-optimistic podcast associated with the medium publication of the same name. We explore the future with a recurring focus on climate change, technologies which are transforming our world, and a side helping of politics and culture. I'm your host, Michael Bernard, Chief Strategist of TFIE. Mark said Jacobson and team have just released a new study covering 100% renewables for 143 countries, representing 99.7% of fossil fuel CO2 emissions for electrical generation. It's an update and maintains the mix of technologies, omitting nuclear and carbon capture and sequestration. I've done my own less sophisticated assessments multiple times of nuclear versus renewables and multiple carbon capture approaches and agree completely with Jacobson and team they're unnecessary, uneconomic, and in the case of carbon capture, almost entirely harmful to progress. I also look at industrial and land use processes in addition to energy and see at least one place in energy where it will be an industry where it will be hard to avoid some carbon capture. But for energy generation, there is no merit to carbon capture and sequestration versus simply eliminating fossil fuel use. From the study. Uh, Only 9% more generator nameplate capacity is needed in the 143 country average to meet time-dependent load than to meet annually averaged load. Storage is also needed to meet time-dependent load. This relates to the much smaller amount of energy we need when we don't throw away the majority of it as waste heat, as per rejected energy flow analyses by the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. But I wanted to draw out a different point that related to storage. I've known for years, based on my reading, analysis, and discussions, that we need much less storage than most people realize, and certainly much less than detractors assert, and that it won't be an unreasonable cost. I also know that it's more of an end-game requirement for decarbonization, not a must-have at the beginning of the transition. Let's start with the selection of storage technologies, per Table S13, from the report from Jacobson et al. It's incredibly conservative and skews to expensive forms of storage. When I looked at it, a few things leapt out. First, that it ignored a couple of obvious technologies, flow batteries, and the use of vehicle-to-grid rolling batteries on wheels we call cars and trucks. I've been going deep on flow batteries and note they have complementary characteristics to lithium technologies at a lower cost, making both useful. Similarly, I've calculated that there will be roughly 20 terawatt-hours of batteries in light vehicles, with perhaps a quarter of that easily available for vehicle-to-grid applications, in addition to their obvious demand-shifting models. The second that leapt out was the mix of storage, the ratio of storage, Jacobson and team posited. Um, I I assembled a U.S.-specific table from the much larger table, um, and and a few things leapt out. Recently, I've been in a pumped hydro tear, triggered by the Australian National University study on global resources. It showed that the United States has 250 times more resource capacity of pumped hydro than is required for all energy storage needs. Furthermore, it's much cheaper than lithium-ion battery technology and cheaper than flow batteries. And of course, it's rock-solid proven technology, having first been built in the 1890s. 
But Jacobson assumes very little pumped hydro storage. Now, my emerging assertion, supported by other analysts' assessments, is that lithium technologies will be very useful for in-day storage for rapid grid balancing and to shift daytime solar into the evening, perhaps four to six hours of storage. Flow batteries will overlap with eight to 24 hours of storage and be very useful for day-ahead reserve markets. Finally, pump storage will be useful a, day, a bit for day-ahead, but especially for the longer-term storage, so its storage will be measured in days and weeks. And to that point, Jacobson only models the highest cost solutions. My hypothesis was that for simplicity of modeling, he and his team selected a minimal set to prove the point, and that they weren't being prescriptive of specific technologies in this space. Jacobson confirmed this to me when I asked him, saying, there are, in fact, many solutions rather than the ones we showed. We just wanted to show one solution that was defensible, including more pumped hydro storage, vehicle to grid, and other battery types will just make the problem even easier to solve. Storage is a solved problem. Even the most expensive and conservative projections as used by Jacobson are much, much cheaper than business as usual. And there are many more solutions in play. Uh, another quote from the study. Sensitivity tests were run in figure S13 of Jacobson et al. to check the impact on cost of different fractions of wind and solar power produced subject to long-distance transmission. The result was that if congestion is an issue at the baseline level of long-distance transmission, increasing the transmission capacity will relieve congestion with only a modest increase in cost. One of the key aspects for an all-renewables grid is transmission, especially continent-scale grids. The scale of North America or Europe, there is sufficient offshore and onshore wind, solar, and hydro to balance the large majority of needs the large majority of the time. Storage makes the remainder manageable. However, one of the many talking points of those who claim that renewables won't suffice or will be too expensive is that grid congestion is impossible to overcome or that new transmission cannot be built economically. Jacobson's study lays both of these to rest. First, it models the requirements and finds that Jacob, the congestion is a lower concern than stated. And second, that just as with storage, additional transmission requirements are much smaller than many anticipate. Another quote, costs are highest in small countries with high population densities, Taiwan, Cuba, South Korea, Mauritius, and Israel, for example. Nevertheless, the, the 2050 wind, water, and solar private energy cost per year in all five regions is 43% to 65% that of business as usual. Continent-scale grids don't solve the problem for nations which are isolated by oceans or politics from easily trading electricity with their neighbors. Israel's independence is hard fought for in an often hostile region and a region subject to fairly regular conflict, which destabilizes nearby countries. South Korea is isolated from the rest of Asia by North Korea. Cuba is both close to the U.S. geographically and far from it politically. Japan is missing from the shortlist, but undoubtedly has similar challenges, resting as it does 200 kilometers from the differently isolated South Korea and about 800 kilometers from the nearest point of China. Jacobson's study doesn't downplay this, but once again leans into conservative costing, one which finds that even sticking to grid isolation the direct and indirect costs of a wind, water, and solar grid are lower than business as usual. 
And similar to the storage question, this is also a case where existing technologies and proposals are in hand. In this case, for many of these places, HVDC can assist in substantially lowering the costs of 100% renewables. As I pointed out a couple of years ago in my assessment of HVDC, it traverses bodies of waters with much lower costs than high voltage alternating current, typically achieving payback at 50 kilometers and gaining advantages with each additional kilometer. China is engaged in building out an Asian high voltage direct current grid to share renewables with neighboring countries, including South Korea and Japan. And China has proposed a transcontinental polar grid to share wind and solar across the Northern Hemisphere. The trend in Jacobson's study, as each point is looked at, is that he and his team aren't suggesting anything radical, but instead a very conservative approach. It is possible to massively prove on with existing proven technologies. You have been listening to The Future is Electric, a techno-optimistic view of climate change, transformative technologies, politics, and culture. I'm your host, Michael Bernard, Chief Strategist of TFIE. These podcasts are available from the medium publication of the same name, Anchor FM, and other podcast sites. Let us know that you are enjoying us via claps and medium, and tell us what you'd like us to cover next.